Are all things lost? Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Whether it's masks, riots, restrictions, pandemics, loss of jobs, it can feel that all is lost. Sometimes when there is sudden loss and your spouse passes away, you lose your health, you wrestle with discouragement, it can feel as though all is lost. I was reflecting on a really difficult conversation that I had several years ago, about four years ago. I got a voicemail from a good friend of mine that lives in northern Colorado, and he informed me that his 19-year-old son had committed suicide. And calling him back was one of the most difficult conversations that I've ever had. And at that moment, it felt like all was lost for him. And it's been interesting to watch him and his wife and their two sons journey through that loss and continue to serve the Lord and find hope in the Lord in the midst of constant grief that doesn't go away. Hope for us is an opportunity to press into faith. I think a lot of times we feel like hope is an option or hope is something that's dictated by our emotions. But hope is something that no matter what the circumstances are tonight, we can choose to trust the Lord. We can choose to press into the Lord and live in a place of hope. It's really interesting to be reminded who Peter's writing to and what they're going through. You may be frustrated with our government. The government that they were dealing with was even worse. They were killing Christians, persecuting Christians. And at some point it might come to that, but they were living that to the point where they were dispersed from their homes. Paul is, or excuse me, Peter is writing believers that literally have had to leave their homes, flee their lives, some being killed for, for their faith, and encouraging them. And what's so amazing about this group of believers that he's writing to, even though they're in really difficult circumstances, they have a hope that is contagious. To where unbelievers are looking on and they're asking, why do you have hope in this situation? It seems that all is lost. There, there's no logical explanation that you should have hope. They wanted to know why they had hope. Would that be the case for us as believers? Do we have a, a different attitude than unbelievers? Do we have one of confidence in God? The sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, that God is working in the midst of the difficulties that we're facing? Or would our attitude be worse? Or would our discouragement be greater? Would our skepticism be even higher? And I'm not saying that there's not stances to make and there's not wrongs that are taking place. But even in light of that, what's our attitude? Is it one of confidence of God and is it trusting in the Lord? And I'll let you know, man, it's a process. It's a process. I think for all of us, sometimes we're in that place of hope and then other times we're in that place of discouragement. But the answer is, it's not all lost. The answer is, God is working. He's always been working his story of redemption, and he's continuing to work his story of redemption. All things are leading up to the second coming of Christ and him making all things right. So let's begin our journey in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? If you remember last week, we talked about when someone 
reviles you or speaks evil against you to return with blessing. A soft answer turns away wrath. Instead of getting caught up in that hole of evil, and you'd almost think after living that way, there wouldn't be any opposition. But the opposite is true. Oftentimes when you begin to live for the Lord, there is opposition. There is persecution. So Peter asks this question, who's going to harm you for being followers of, of good? And most of the time, people are not going to harm you for doing good. But occasionally, people will. Occasionally, darkness is going to come against those who are doing good. In verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. This is hope suffering. It seems that these two words shouldn't go together. Hope and suffering. When we think of hope, oftentimes we think of our circumstances going our way. But in the midst of following God, there's going to be adversity, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be persecution, that there's going to be suffering. But as we suffer, to continue to have hope. As these believers are in a place of, of suffering for righteousness sake, suffering because they're Christians, because they're followers of Christ, Paul says you're blessed. You have hope in the midst of that suffering. Jesus taught us rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake because great is your reward in heaven. We find the disciples and the apostles in the book of Acts counting it a privilege to be able to, to suffer for the Lord. If we have that opportunity to be able to truly suffer for righteousness sake, do we have hope in the midst of that? Do we see that as a privilege of being able to suffer for Christ's name? But something creeps in. It's fear. Fear creeps in even when we begin to consider the possibility of, of persecution. And fear was knocking on the door of these believers as well. And Paul says, I can't get Paul out of my mind. It's Peter. And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The tendency is to be afraid of the threats and, and to be troubled. What fears are beginning to knock on the door of your faith? What is it in the current environment that is causing there to, to be fear? Is it financial fear? Is it the fear of religious freedom? Is it the fear of the possibility of the lack of provisions? What is it that causes there to be that fear inside of us? In Psalms 27, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Who shall I be afraid? Alexander McLaren wrote, Only he who can say, The Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, Of whom shall I be afraid? Let me read that again. Only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? It's good to identify the fear, then to be able to press into the Lord, to allow him to be the strength of our life. I don't like difficulty as much as you. I don't sign up for difficulty. I much prefer easy street. But when we go through difficulty, it gives us opportunity to not just know up here that God's the strength of my life, but really have to live it. Okay, God, there's enough challenge in my life where this has to be more than just in my head. 
It's got to be more than just a verse that I've memorized. But I need to experience what it is for you to be the strength of my life. I need to experience what it is to trust you and abide in your presence to allow you to be my shelter to where I'm not living in fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. To press into God's love to where then God dispels the fear. That's hope suffering. That's in the midst of suffering and difficulty to say, yes, there is this tendency for fear to get the best of me. I'm not going to allow fear to get the best of me, but I'm pressed into the Lord being the strength of my life. I'm going to have hope in the midst of, of the suffering. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts. This word sanctify means set apart. The ESV version puts it this way. Put in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So it's choosing to put God in the forefront of our hearts, to to set him apart in our hearts, to set him in his proper place in our hearts. The way we do that is through worship. By worshiping him in spirit and truth. Don't lose sight of worship. Singing to the Lord praise and thanksgiving. Oftentimes, the way out of discouragement and the way out of hopelessness is praise. It's thanksgiving. It's worship. It's setting the Lord apart in our hearts. It's putting him in the proper place. You can imagine for these believers how easy it would be to put suffering and persecution at the forefront of your hearts. This is challenging. It's challenging for me, and it may be challenging for you. But if all of the frustrations that are taking place with the current difficulties that we're facing, if that is the anthem in our hearts, that's the wrong song. Church, that's the wrong song. What if these believers went around and the only thing that was going on in their hearts and their minds was the frustration over the persecution? That's the wrong song. That's not setting the Lord at the forefront of of their hearts. So we've got to make sure that the Lord is at the forefront and then attitudes and actions are coming after that. And each of us have to sort out what are those attitudes and actions that the Lord is calling us to take, but does the Lord have the proper place? It not, may not be really the, the COVID difficulties that's getting you spun up. It may be something far more personal. It may be relationships that are very core to you. And it's easy for those relational difficulties to have all of our attention and the Lord needs to be set in that place. Sometimes it's even good things, right? Good things can be going on in our lives and we put that at the very forefront of our hearts and our lives. So this is a willful choice to say, God, I'm putting you in, my, you in your proper place. And worship does that. And that's why God encourages us to worship encourages us to enter in to his presence and give him praise and thanksgiving to meditate upon his truths. Days when Christ is sanctified in our hearts, those are beautiful days. Amen. When, when God is in that proper place in my heart, those are beautiful days because they're, they're days of peace with him. They're days of rejoicing. Hope's witness as this verse continues, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So there's hope suffering, there's hope in suffering, but then there's also hope's witness to have a ready defense. And this is a defendant 
that is testifying in a court of law. If you were a defendant in a court case, you would, you would go in with facts. You would go in with your, your information, a ready defense. But the purpose for this ready defense, notice, is the hope that's where? The hope that's in you. Hope is abiding in you. Hope is living in you. To where then somebody asks, why do you have this hope? These believers that are being persecuted and murdered by the Roman government, yet they're going through their lives with hope. They're trusting the Lord. They're looking forward to heaven. They're testifying of Jesus to where unbelievers are coming alongside of them going, I've never seen anything like this before, right? There's hope. There's a smile on your face. There should, there should be no joy in your life, but yet there's joy in your life. What's going on? Is that the way we're navigating COVID? Where people go, man, my joy's sure gone. I'm confused, I'm discouraged, but yet you seem to have joy. You're not walking in fear. You're not living in fear. You're not, you're not freaking out. Well, what's going on? Well, that's Christ. You just got diagnosed with cancer and I, and I see that you're suffering and you're mourning, but yet there's a hope in the midst of that suffering. I've never seen anything like, like this before. You mean your, your spouse left you and you didn't want a divorce? And you feel abandoned and you feel rejected, but yet you continue to have hope in the midst of this trial. What in the world's going on? This verse is primarily not directing us to have an answer for every question about the Christian faith. Though that's a ministry that's very valid, apologetics. And it does come from the the Greek word apology. Not that we're apologizing for our faith, but we're giving a defense to our faith. But the clear understanding of this text is you have an answer for the hope that's inside of you. We're ready to give a defense for the reason that we have hope, the reason that we're not walking through this life with our head down and our tail between our legs, living in hope instead of living in discouragement. The attitude in which we're to provide the answer is with meekness and fear. Meekness is gentleness. Fear is respect. If we have all of the right answers, but we're not treating someone with kindness, meekness is power under control, we've missed it. So the attitude that we're to have as believers, do you have a lot of the right answers on some of the difficulties that are current day issues, but do you have the meekness to wrap that message Do you have that meekness? If somebody comes to you and they're asking, we need to approach that with fear, fear of God and fear of, this is an amazing opportunity that they're asking. This is an unbeliever and they're asking, what's the hope that's inside of me? Lord, please help me to be able to share this in love. Help me to be able to share this in meekness. So sharing the truth, not backing from the truth, but to share the truth in meekness. Before we move on, would you say that hope is in you? That hope is in you. We've got to remember God's unfolding message. He's the God of hope. He's the God of redemption. As you read the scriptures, read the scriptures as one giant story, Genesis to Revelation. 
we see God's plan of redemption beginning with the garden, God's story. Many people feel that if we just had the perfect environment, we wouldn't sin. Well, Adam and Eve had the perfect environment. They hadn't yet sinned, and they didn't have to deal with in-laws, right? It was perfect. Yet they sinned. You know that they chose to disobey God. It's not a perfect environment. God continues with his story. Many would say, well, we just need a set of rules. We just need a set of of laws. We need justice. Is justice going to solve the evils of today? Well, God gave rules. He gave laws. To Moses, to the children of Israel, and Israel showed time and time again that laws cannot save us, that we fall short. So, how about everybody do what's right in their own eyes? Sound good? You're inherently good. All you need to do is do what's right in your own eyes. A whole book of the Bible is devoted to that after the law. It's the book of Judges. It's gruesome. There's stories in the book of Judges that are difficult to read out loud because it shows the evil heart that's inside of us. It's not us all being left to our own means. So we need good leadership. Man, it's an election year. We need good leadership. Our problems are going to be solved with good leadership. God then devotes the rest of the story to the kings in the Chronicles. Kings, leaders that were lifted up, that failed, didn't solve the problems of the people. All of it leads to who? Jesus. We need Jesus. Not a perfect environment, not laws, not everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, not good leaders. All of those things have their place, but they can't save us. We need a savior, God's redemption. All those years of sin, all those years of brokenness leading to Christ's coming, his death and resurrection. Jesus goes up to heaven on Mount Olives. The disciples are like, what in the world happened? The angel comes, says, you've got some work to do because Jesus is gonna descend just as he ascended. Guys, the story is not over. It's the second coming of Christ. All of this depravity and wickedness and evil, it's leading to the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is God's redemptive story. This is is why we have hope that in the midst of perilous times, God hasn't abandoned his story of redemption, amen? But yet, let's make it a little more personal. There's our little story inside of God's big story. A couple falls in love. They get married. Great hope for the future in Bethlehem. But yet there's a famine in Bethlehem to the point where they don't have any food. Can you you imagine? Maybe you can imagine a little bit more now. They're running out of toilet paper, quite literally. We got to move. We got to leave Bethlehem. A bigger decision than for us because this is the promised land. This is the promised land. God had promised to give Bethlehem to their tribe, but, but they have to leave. They have two sons, and they travel to a new land, to Moab. A new language, a new culture. 
don't have the tools to learn the new language that we do. Google Translator is not in their pocket. Have to learn a new language. Have to learn a new culture. No matter how much they try to immerse, they're still the outsiders, but their sons manage to get married. Comforted a little bit from the loss. Maybe they can make life work in Moab. But one day, in this couple that was in love, the husband passes away. He dies. Yet another loss. The loss of their home, the loss of finances, but now the loss of the father, the husband. Try to get up, try to keep going, and both of her sons die. Naomi loses her husband, loses both of her sons. She's a foreigner in Moab. God visits Bethlehem with bread. She decides, I'm going back. I got to get back to, to Bethlehem. Speaks to her two daughter-in-laws, you stay. She was looking after their security. Staying in Moab was their best chance of getting remarried, avoiding poverty, avoiding starvation. Ruth says, I'm in. I'm going with you. Ruth, I am going to have your people be my people, your God be my God. They get to Bethlehem, and Naomi, her name means pleasantness. You can imagine her parents naming her at birth. Oh, you're so pleasant. Let's call you pleasantness. She comes back to Bethlehem and sees old friends and says, you know what? Don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. She is not experiencing hope. This woman of God is in a place of discouragement and she just owns it. And there's part of me about Naomi that likes her honesty to be able to say, I'm not going to pretend this is where I'm at. I'm just bitter. I'm angry about these losses. I don't understand these losses, but God's working. God had provided Ruth in the midst of this loss and Ruth begins to go out in the fields. Those who were wealthy would leave a small portion of the field for the poor and the poor would come and, and harvest. Ruth goes to Boaz's field. Not by accident, God's leading. God's leading in a very natural way, the supernatural and the nat natural. Boaz notices Ruth, sees her virtue, her heart for the Lord, begins to inquire of her. Naomi starts to understand there's some interest taking place, and before you know it, redemption takes place. Boaz redeems Ruth and, and Naomi, becomes the kinsman redeemer. Some days go by, Ruth conceives, has Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. David's lineage leads to Christ. This little story of Naomi and her loss and her confusion and her difficulty that she was going to was part of the bigger story of God's redemption. Naomi never saw David. Naomi never saw Jesse. Naomi only saw Obed. She never knew how her story led into God's son being born on this earth until heaven, until eternity. 
Paul writes to us and says that our affliction is working for us a far more eternal weight and glory. We may not see it until we get to heaven. We may not know all that's happening in the kingdom through this COVID virus until we get home to be with the Lord. We may not know how our own personal loss of a loved one passing away, our own personal loss of a, of a relationship, our own personal loss of, of health is working into God's redemption. Hope, though, in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the pain, says, God, I'm trusting that my little story is part of your bigger story. In Romans 15, verse 13, it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope filling you. So we're full of hope and we're abounding in, in that hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, having a good conscience. This is hope's freedom. So hope's suffering, hope's witness, but now hope's freedom. In the midst of the difficulties and the challenges and the persecution to have a clear conscience before the Lord. What is conscience? Conscience is that moral compass that God has put in all of us, believers and unbelievers. In the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit works in the conscience. Our conscience, unfortunately, can get defiled. It can get seared. We can stop listening to the conscience that the Lord has put inside of us. It's a lot like Waze or Google Maps, isn't it? You ever typed in an address to Google Maps and you're like, no, that's just wrong. I don't know how many times I've been going up to Denver and I'll put into Waze to direct me up to Denver and it'll encourage me to get off of the freeway on I-25 to take a frontage road, you know, just south of Castle Rock. And I'll argue with ways, no, you're not right. It's going to take more time to get in the frontage road. Then I get stuck. I should have listened to ways. You should listen to your conscience. Listen to it, right? It's that little lady, you know, that conscience inside of you that's saying, hey, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't, don't, don't say that. Have a good conscience, and in the midst of difficulty, it can be easy to get off track. It can be easy to go ahead and neglect our conscience. Peter, who's writing this, understood what it was to get off track and to sin and, and fail. He denied the Lord. He did what he never thought he would do. He experienced the blood of Jesus that restores his conscience, that lifts that burden off of his shoulders and gives him freedom. As we'll go on to read, it's the gospel, it's the death and resurrection of Christ that clears our conscience. A clear conscience is not necessarily a perfect person. Peter wasn't a, a perfect person. We look at Peter's failure, and we look at another disciple's failure, Judas, and Peter chose to go to the tree of Calvary for forgiveness, didn't he? Judas, in self-guilt, went to another tree, and he hung himself committed suicide. His bowels fell, fell out onto to the earth. With our guilt, we're going to go somewhere. And sometimes it's in the form of torturing ourselves. Sometimes it's in the form of drugs and alcohol. Sometimes it's in the form of, of sexual sin. But the place that we need to go is Calvary. The place that we need to go is to the cross. 
to clear our conscience, to to live in that place of, of freedom, free of guilt, knowing that our sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So you're walking in integrity, walking with the Lord, walking in a clear conscience, where then you know if people are coming against you and calling you an evildoer, that they're the ones who are going to be ashamed. God's going to take care of that. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We've all suffered for doing evil at different points in our lives. Life's already difficult enough and we make it more difficult by by sinful decisions. And so Peter, he knows that as well. And he says it's better to suffer for the will of God, in the will of God for the kingdom's sake, than to suffer for doing evil. He shows us Christ's example as we're being challenged to, to suffer for righteousness' sake. For Christ also suffered once for our sins. Notice that word also. So we're joining in the sufferings of Christ. Persecution. Walking in the footsteps of, of, of Jesus. He, he suffered. He also suffered. And he suffered once for our sins. Christ suffered for me, for, for my sins. The just for the unjust. The perfect sacrifice for our imperfections. He's sinless and he died for our sins. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That he might bring us to God. So the work of Jesus on the cross cleared our conscience, brought us to God, to where we have peace with God. Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We may have difficult circumstances. There may be persecution. There may be hardship. But the life of a believer is you can go to bed at night knowing you have peace with God. <laughs> Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that going, oh, I'm, I know that I'm right with God, not because of who I am, but because of the blood of Jesus. We're justified by faith. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God through Christ. Jesus has brought us to God. In what relationship are we brought to God? We're children. Deep and intimate and personal relationship with God. We have peace with God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus suffered in the flesh, was crucified in the flesh, and then his flesh was made alive by the Spirit. A physical resurrection where they're able to touch the hands and feet of Jesus. We as believers are promised a physical resurrection, a glorified body. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. What just took place here in verse 19 and 20? Jesus did some preaching. He preached to the spirits that that are in prison who were disobedient. Then we're taken back to the time of the flood. It says that they were disobedient during the days of Noah while Noah was preparing the ark, building the ark. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 describes a a time where there was demonic activity. It appears that here Peter is referring 
to those demons, that, that these demons now have been placed in, in prison, and then Jesus goes and he preaches to those demons. A cross-reference, Luke 16. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible in Luke 16. We see a beggar named Lazarus, and he's taken to paradise, or Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom was the holding tank for believers until Christ died for their sins. Couldn't be in the presence of God until Jesus died for their sins, but they were looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to Christ dying on the cross for their, their sins. But then Lazarus was able to look across this great chasm and see those that were in torment, those that had rejected Christ and the hope of the, the coming Messiah. It appears that Jesus went to that side, that side of torment, to preach to these demons. Now, what is he preaching? I don't think he's preaching the gospel like, hey guys, um, there's a second chance for, for you, right? I think he's preaching judgment to them. Hey, th this is the judgment that has come upon you. Why would this matter in the context of a clear conscience? Why would Peter give this reference right now to, to Jesus dying upon the cross, preaching to these demons who are in prison, judgment, because what is the role of Satan in the life of a believer? Unfortunately, Revelations 12.10 says that he accuses the brethren day and night. Well, Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be in every place at all times, but he has minions, doesn't he? He has demons that do his, his bidding. And these demons have been defeated through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Demons will want to come to us and lie and threaten, but they have no more power because of what Christ has done. And these demons will always come and say, your, your conscience isn't clear. God doesn't really forgive you. God can't use you. You're the ultimate mess up, right? And Peter is saying, we need to understand what Christ has done. We need to understand the victory that Christ has won in the demonic realm, that we fight from a position of victory, not for victory. How do we know this? Because we look at verses 21 and 22. It says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This word antitype, it means which corresponds to. It can read this way. This also corresponds to which now saves us. The analogy that Peter is using is baptism pointing to the flood. The flood was the end of the old life, wasn't it? The old life died, was literally buried. Baptism for us in Christ, the moment you receive Christ as your Savior, you're baptized with Christ, you're immersed in Christ, and our old man is buried with Christ to never be raised again, and we're risen in newness of life. So Peter uses the flood, this demonic activity that was taking place, the flood pointing to the baptism that we've received in Christ, when someone physically gets baptized, it's a physical representation of what's already taken place. They've been already baptized in Jesus. This is an outward symbol of that inward reality. 
through the, the resurrection of Christ. And then Peter notes here that this results in a good conscience towards God. This is hope's freedom, church. This is the gospel, that we have a cleared conscience before God. Vodka cannot clear your conscience before God. When you're spending time in Costco, it just seems like vodka sales are going out the roof. It's like people got this much groceries and this much vodka, right? It's like, wow, you're doing a lot of cooking. (laughs) And yet that vodka cannot clear the conscience before God. All, All the pleasure in the world can't clear the conscience before God. All the marijuana cannot clear conscience before God. Marijuana sales are are doing good, right? Everyone's trying to find an answer for this cleared conscience, but it's what Jesus has done. It's understanding, man, Christ paid the price. I'm looking to the cross, receiving forgiveness, and now I'm going to walk in integrity with the Lord. I've been buried with Christ and risen in newness of life. These lies that the enemy is throwing at me, They're only threats. They're only lies. That's not who I am. I'm I'm free in Christ. It would have been hard for Peter to let go of his failure, don't you think? This moment that he was supposed to stand with the Lord, he denied the Lord. He cursed that he never knew the Lord. If he wasn't careful, he could just relive that over and over, but instead he received the forgiveness of the Lord, the restoration of the Lord, and went and shared that message with others. And we end in verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So this emphasis that as Christ ascended, he's at the right hand of God and he has all authority over the demonic realm and the demonic realm is subject to him. This is why James could write with authority and declare and say that if we submit to God and resist the enemy, he will flee from us. I want us to turn to Lamentations chapter 3 as we close out tonight. Lamentations chapter 3. I want to look at Jeremiah's struggle with hope. Jeremiah is dealing with darkness. He's dealing with hard hearts. Not seeing people turn to the Lord ungodly leaders, and he is discouraged. So let's read from verse 1. I just want you to hear how discouraged this man of God is, how discouraged the, the prophet is. I am the man who has seen afflictions by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he's turned his hand against me time and time again through the day. He has aged my bones and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He's hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He's bent his bow and sent me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrow of his quiver 
to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting songs all the day. He has filled me with bitterness and made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace, and I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. God bless you guys. Have a good night. Hope, hope that's encouraging. Verse 19, remember my afflictions and my, my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Verse 21, here we see the change. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. What was the change for Jeremiah? I recall this to mind. I recall this to mind. This is who the Lord is. He's merciful. He has new, fresh mercy every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Church, it's not all lost. It's a process to get to that place of hope. Jeremiah is a good example. Get along with God and wrestle. Get along with God and say, Lord, I feel like you're a bear and you've attacked me. I, I feel like you're, you're against me. You took me to a, a dark place. I don't understand this pain, this confusion. And in the midst of that, respectfully, humbly, pour that out before the Lord and then begin to think about who the Lord is. If God calls us to hope, then hope can't be dictated on our emotions or circumstances. It's a choice that we make through faith. Say, okay, Lord, this is what my emotions are telling me. This is an emotional thing for Jeremiah. But God, this is what I know to be true about you. What a great way to end in taking communion tonight. There's communion in the back and communion in the front. For those at home, you can pause and celebrate communion and go, this is what my feelings are telling me. This is what my frustrations are declaring to me. But God, this is who I know you to be. You sent your son for me. And I'm remembering your broken body and I'm remembering your shed blood. Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Let's do that just right now and be real and honest with the Lord. Father, we don't want to pretend with you. And as much as we'd like to live in hope, a lot of times we're in defeat and discouragement. And we do have questions. We do have frustrations. But we do know that you're in control and that you're good. We know your nature expressed through your Son. So would you help our unbelief and help our weakness and help us in communion to meet with you, to wrestle with you, to hear from you, to be in a place of hope? Would you fill us with hope as we believe that our hope could be a testimony to a lost world? We pray for those that don't know you, God, that this would be a time where they would see the church alive and that they would see the church 
hoping in you. In Jesus' name, 